Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast that finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I'm really glad those characters were so strong because I almost felt I have to do this for them. What happens when you've created an amazing set of characters in your mind with no story or setting for them to exist within? Well, then you make a place for them. Wahala is a book about three mixed-race friends living in London. Ronki, Simi and Boo all have the gift of two cultures, Nigerian and English, and they all view their dual heritage differently. This is a story about friendship, race, food and fashion, delivered with incredible wit and humour, with tension in all the right places. When I spoke to Nikki, the book wasn't even published and yet it was already being turned into a BBC series. This is Nikki's first book, and it will not be her last. I'm delighted that she's my guest today. Chapter 1, an oo and an ah. We've had the pleasure of speaking to people from all walks of life on this podcast. We've been offered moments of absolute clarity from guests like Colin Grant, Professors Vince Brown and Sonny Singh about the importance of diversity and representation in writing. We've also learned from people like author Kate Davis, the creator of In at the Deep End, that representation doesn't mean telling stories of suffering. Minorities can have their story told without purely focusing on the hardships they encounter. Wahala is a story about race, yes, but to say that's all it's about would be a massive disservice to the book. It's about so much more, a premise that Nikki set out to champion when she put pen to paper. So I wanted to write a book that had people like me in it. That was really important to me. I think a lot of books about black people tend to center on struggle and pain, and it's not a universal experience. And I don't wake up and think, I'm black or brown or I just wake up and I'm me and I wanted to write a book that other people would see that we can we're pretty much the same under the skin we have the same problems we have universal issues where we just happen things just happen to be a little bit more complicated when you're mixed race I also like a lot of drama in my drama and although my first draft didn't have very much in it at all I did want to write this kind of book I like to read where things happen there's a bit of oh and a bit of ah and you can gasp and laugh and because I come from an advertising background I almost set this out as a brief that this is what I want to achieve it wasn't sort of I I need to get a book out of me it was I wanted to write the kind of book I'd like to read. You very quickly leave to one side the backgrounds of these of these women of these characters they they are they're important but they're not critical it's established very very quickly and it and it is a beat that appears throughout you know I mean everyone's it's the references to food alone um, it's not you can't forget where these women are are from and what their um, their characters are but it very quickly turns doesn't it I mean you've called it Wahala which for people listening might not know is a an ever-present word in Nigerian culture it, it means trouble is that yeah. right? It means trouble and it's ubiquitous. In Nigeria, you hear this all the time. It's either there's too much wahala or no wahala if there's no problem. It is just ubiquitous word. And it's usually said with a bit of a gasp or a sigh or the shake of a head. I'm actually shocked that the book retained the title 
in my head, it would the publishers would check. I even thought before it went on submission, the agent would probably say, "Well, they're not going to call it Wahala." And in one of the zooms, it was suggested that should we have Wahala with trouble in brackets? And I was like, "Well, no. If we can't just call it Wahala, then let's call it something else." But I'm thrilled that the name stays because I also think people are quite intelligent. We have Google, and you don't have to know what everything means to sort. You don't have to know the definition in order to understand the concept. Yeah, and it's like. Watching Shakespeare is like watching something in a, you know, you could watch a slasher movie in Klingon and still get it. Exactly. Right? So I'm I'm delighted that it retained. Me too. It's only a word that I came to learn this year when I was writing something for a for a British Nigerian character, and that story opens with a uh, here comes the Wahala, but it's a, it's such a strong title and and it means trouble and there is a truckload of trouble in there this is. novel. There's quite a lot of it. And touching on something you said earlier, I also wanted this, the culture of my women to be texture rather than foreground, because certainly in my life, all it is is a texture. Occasionally, I have an experience that other people don't have, or I have two versions of comfort food rather than one. But I wouldn't say it's the centre of my life, having two cultures or being mixed race. It's just a background. It's just a backdrop. And that's what I wanted in the book. I wanted the characters to stand apart from their identity if you like once you establish their mixed race they're just you forget that bit they're just normal people they're just normal people you know with the same flaws that every everyone exactly. else has right and they they have hopes and dreams and aspirations and classically they have a dark secret yes. which I, I i sort of really like and this is i felt i was in very capable hands because one it's well written and two it's following it's followed trusted ground right the the attractive person from the past who turns up something bad will happen and probably has happened in the past. And we have the jeopardy of the past being played out in the present, right? This is well-trodden ground, isn't yes. it? But am I right in, in assuming, and, and I say this as a writer, you've got really nicely drawn characters and you're trying to bring people in to a world. Did you have the plot as it is now from the very beginning or was this a learning process through all of the drafts that you did it was totally a learning process in my head i did have the finale i did know what would happen at the end but when i'd written my first shitty very shitty in my case draft i printed it out flicked through these reams of paper and thought what a waste had a quick read and put it in a drawer because I'd realised I'd written a book where absolutely nothing happened. My girls went for even more lunches than they do in the final book, even more wine bars, wore even more clothes and talked even more about food. It was just, it was great if you wanted to read about three women went, who nothing happened to. But what I think what had happened is I'd fallen so much in love with them that I was scared to do anything bad to them. And it's also difficult to know where to put the badness. I literally left it alone. At this point, it wasn't called Wahala. I left it alone for six months. And when people said, so how's that book you're writing? I'd mumble and sort of shy away and wish, why did I ever tell them I was doing it? Because now I have to admit it was a complete failure. And I think I would have left it in that drawer if I didn't keep thinking about those characters. So in hindsight, looking back, I'm really glad those characters were so strong because I almost felt I have to do this for them because I'd see a girl with a ponytail and I'd think it was boo and then I started thinking about trouble and how we can throw 
as much trouble at each of them. And because I knew the characters really well, it was almost clear what sort of trouble they would take and how they'd react to it. But on editing, I mean, writing is all in the editing, as you know, but unpicking and putting back together is almost as hard as writing the first draft, if not harder. And it sort of becomes a real structural exercise. With hindsight, I don't know that I've written three rotating points of view because that makes it harder as well because you've got this whole continuity thing and who knows what and when do they know it and you the next chapter has got to be a boo chapter so you you know it sort of affected your plot and the other thing is I didn't know much about genre although I've read I read a book a week and I probably have since I was 15 you don't really think about genre when you're not a writer when you're not in the publishing world you go to a bookshop you buy a book you like or someone recommends one I think if I knew then what I know now I wouldn't have mixed my genres together because I'm glad I did but if I had all this knowledge I'd have probably been much straighter and not written a book that is a friendship book with a lot of drama with a lot of revenge chapter two my two selves in the first chapter of Wahala a fourth woman is introduced a ghost from the past who's set to turn everything upside down for the three friends, Ronki, Simi and Boo. This, I believe, is where Nikki truly showcases her masterful writing. There's so much humour, heartwarming moments with friends sitting around a dinner table, and yet underneath all that, she's able to create a brooding mixture of tension, suspense and horror. She does this with the introduction of Isabel, someone who shares a dark history with our three protagonists, And when two genres collide, it gets tricky. You have to remember the vital role that each plays in your story so one doesn't dwarf the other. It's something that has to be continually worked at. You really do. You have to. It's like sowing seeds and weaving threads and trying to make sure they unravel in the right way. And you're also conning the reader. So then you know there's malevolence coming, but you don't know where. But also you don't want to treat your reader like an idiot, which I think was the biggest thing. And I I'm, I think that is where it takes the editing and One thing I learned from advertising was to be very critical of my own work. I've had clients rewrite pretty much everything I've ever written. I am used to my work being pulled apart. It's not that I don't sulk. I will sulk for a day or two, but then you just get on with it. And my husband was great in that he would read and say, this doesn't, he was totally critical, sulk for a day, go back and accept that, yes, he's right. This isn't skillful enough. This is too obvious or this isn't obvious enough. And making sure those threads are laid right from chapter one. so that you're sort of by the time you get to the end, you don't feel conned because you can see how it kind of could have happened this way. Yes. And I actually felt very empowered. And I and I think that structurally that's because of the different perspectives that you give. And there is a natural cadence to the book in that we know we're going to get a boo chapter every third chapter yes. or you know, however, however it is that it that it works. But what that does is I think I found that very empowering. It's a bit like the notion of dramatic irony when the audience, you know, if the characters know everything and the audience is the last to know, then the audience and all the reader is just going to get hacked off. Yeah. Right? But because you gave me the perspectives, I felt empowered because I'm seeing a perspective that the other characters aren't necessarily getting to see. So I think that way it would have worked. Had it been a conventional third person, real time narrative, it might not have done. Yeah. Uh, and I found that quite interesting so I think you picked absolutely the right structure 
for the style that you that you wanted. Am I right? Did you say you had that in mind the, the whole time you wanted to rotate the perspectives? I didn't have it in time. And honestly, I think it's because I'm a slight control freak and I have a little bit of OCD that to me, it just had to go in order. And, you know, there are right. people saying, why should, you know, if you need if you need to say more about Boo, then just have two Boo chapters. But to me, it just, it felt to me only fair that each woman had their go and it sort of worked as a cycle. I also don't like books where you're not sure whose head you're in, where you sort of have to flick back a few pages to say, who am I now and who am I reading about? So I thought, make it easier for the reader to have this very deliberate carousel of characters. And and I then thought it actually added something to it because it's almost, you could see this seduction by Isabel taking place because you saw how it worked on diff how she's a different person to each of the three characters and once right. I got halfway through with this carousel it was kind of well you just have to stick to it now there's a there's such a sense of history to this both literally and and metaphorically but the characters that we hear about but don't necessarily see the people on the end of a of an email or an answer phone message or a or a voicemail or whatever it whatever it might be things that happened back home back in in Nigeria that really do pay off there are decades and decades aren't there of build up yes. to, to this to this moment how much of your own experience and your own life went into this <laughs> leaving the dark stuff to one side but yeah. you know you you were born here in the UK as I understand yeah. but brought up in Lagos yeah right? I went to Lagos before I was two so I have no I was born in Bristol but I have no recollection of I don't remember be, being two. So as far as I was concerned, I was brought up in Nigeria, went to school in Nigeria, university in Nigeria. We did come to England on holidays every few years, but very much brought up as a mixed race person in Nigeria, which in Nigeria, you're called Onyinbo if you're mixed race, which means white. So in Nigeria, as far as everyone was concerned, you're white, not in a nasty or threatening or unpleasant way, but just, oh, look, Onyinbo. And the kids would shout it on the street if you drove past you know it was sort of my mother was even more because my mother is blonde and blue-eyed so she'd literally get her hair touched because it was so unusual and then I dropped out of medical school in Nigeria education is everything so you have to be one degree is not enough you want a master's and a PhD and I was always going to be a doctor it wasn't something that was asked or questioned it was just you're going to be a doctor and so I, and I see that I see that ended up in a character it trait did. Well. it became <laughs> I, didn't know that was, I didn't know that was real okay it's brilliant. such a big part of my life when I dropped out I mean my dad literally disowned me it was his shock and his freak outness was so huge that the only way I had to run away I ran away to England and joined the nearest thing I could find to a circus which was an ad agency and it probably took four or five years for me to heal the relationship with my dad and we were totally cool now he now says it was his idea and I always knew you should write a book which is the benefit of fatherly hindsight but yes I did give and I, I think it was subliminally giving these things to my characters and I think that helped me make them real I mean Simi's not like me at all but I did give her that part of my history and then with Boo, Boo has adapted so much to try and fit in and I did do that myself. I straightened my hair, I tweaked my accent, I changed my name. I, you know, I tried to make sure that I blended in in my advertising agency. So I was one of the lads, if you like. And when you do that, it does, you can almost feel like you're sort of, you have two people, you know, I'd go and see my friends at the weekend and suddenly slip back into my half Nigerian self. But in 
in the work environment, I was totally trying hard to be my English self. And I wanted to explore that sort of sense of belonging, those two cultures, the sort of not fitting in, but fitting in and not being sure who you really are. And a lot of my friends went into the book, Ronke's scatter cushion problem, totally borrowed from somebody I know, because it's sort of easier to make these characters feel real in your head if you can tie them to real things. I was watching Villanelle at the time, Killing Eve, and I'm pretty sure subliminally some of that went into Isabel. So into the wardrobe and the arrogance and the sense of entitlement but it's that none of them are anybody they're just fragments of I think one of the best ways to be a writer is to eavesdrop a lot I mean I sit on a train I always take my laptop and think I'm going to work really hard but as soon as two people sit behind me and start talking I find my attention is totally switched into what they're saying and I almost write down little chunks of dialogue because things sound so much more real when they actually are real you mentioned Simi, and and that's a. I had no idea that was based on yeah. uh, on yourself because that's even more poignant because that's a lovely beat with her father when she leaves him all of these. I think he tells her off because he never checks his email yes. and she's emailed him and not WhatsApped him. Uh, and she says, "Look, I I paraphrase." She says, "Look, I know you're not proud of me. I know you think I'm a failure because I I didn't go to medical school or dropped out, whatever it is." His reply is very very tender and, and very very heartwarming in that in that he is incredibly proud yeah. of her, but has often probably found it difficult to tell her that. So that's actually a really, really lovely beat. I'm the same. I, I'm notebooks, always carrying notebooks, always, always listening, always trying to think of, could I use that in, in some way? Because I think watching people and listening to people's fascinating and it's also free yes. so it's a good a good bit of a uh, good bit of research nikki can we talk about the publishing process from what i've read this all moved pretty quickly once you'd gotten to a stage where you had a version of the manuscript that you were comfortable with you knew what your pitch was you were sending out the pitch and you were getting very quick requests for the whole manuscript. How fast did this thing start to move once it did? Once it did, I sent out my manuscript and I was told, you know, I, I, I really engaged with the process. I was following people on Twitter. I was part of lots of reading sort of groups and writing groups. And I was totally sure that it would take me months to find an agent and you send out eight requests eight queries at a time and it can take six weeks for them to decide they're not going to read it. So I sent off my first eight queries and within three hours, I had a request for the long. And I was walking my dogs at the time. I'm literally whooping and screeching like a banshee. They probably thought I was bonkers. And then you leverage it. So you tell the others who have the first three chapters that, hey, I've got a request for a long. And it was just before lockdown, which I'm really grateful for, because it meant I could go and actually face to face with these agents in London. It was in February last year. And I had six offers of representation within a week which was bonkers because before that only one person, my husband had read my work. So it was just this sort of, is this really happening? Is this, and they also, one thing about writing is other people, the way they describe your book is so much better than you ever could. Cause you're, you know, we don't brag, we don't sit there writing, well, I've written this very subversive dark tale, you know, we're sort of, well, I've written a book, it's got three girls in it and other people are feeding back and you think, oh my God, did I really write that? So it happened incredibly quickly. But before that, there was one stage before where I entered a few 
amateur competitions for non-agented writers. So I entered the Blue Pencil and the Myriad and the Grindstone. And I honestly think that is such a good thing to do because it makes you polish your work. It makes you really look at it until it shines. And I think they cost like 20 quid or 15 quid. So it's not sort of impossible to enter them. And some of them you get feedback regardless of whether you place or not. But it was placing in a few of these competitions that gave me the confidence to query. Because I think otherwise it's just you and these pieces of paper. And one minute you look at them and think, God, I've written a masterpiece. And the other minute you look and think, it's a load of crap. So you on it's quite nice to have some somebody saying, actually, that's not so bad. And without that, I don't think I'd have got to the stage where I queried. Chapter three, the pitch. Do you have your own back? Do you know how to sell your strengths without underestimating your worth? Many of us struggle with that. We sing the praises of others while sinking into the depths of imposter syndrome when it's time to tell people about our own accomplishments. And sadly, this same mindset is what holds many writers back. How many great stories have gone unnoticed because a writer didn't sell the idea well enough? Pitching a book and writing a book are two very different but incredibly essential parts of the process of the business of writing. If it wasn't for Nikki's expertise in this area, even a brilliant book like Wahala could still have been ignored. Coming from an advertising background where I'm used to my work being judged, I'm used to having to sell concepts really quickly and really clearly, I think that really helped hone my synopsis and my covering letter. People have a tendency to say much too much and to explain in much too detail. And it really is getting to an elevator level where it's not about telling them everything. It's about, it's selling. I mean, we shouldn't describe it. That is exactly what it is. It's trying to turn your book into a one-liner that you would want to buy if you read that one line. And also, I think knowing that people are looking for, I mean, I thought when I'd written my book, I thought that was it, I've written a book. I didn't know about these reams of edits that you go through. You know, I didn't know I'd be sick to death of editing at one point. So it's also making sure you focus on the really important things that your characters sing, that your structure makes sense, that you have something there's something slight, not not necessarily unique, because what is unique? There's nothing new, but something that stands a little bit apart from everything else before you query. And then having the, you know, skin of a rhinoceros, I think, helps. Well, that certainly helps. Yes. I mean, the hard work doesn't start until you've written the first draft. And what we try and say to as many people as possible is the first draft is never right. So don't waste time getting it wrong. Just get it wrong. Get it finished. Get it then- down. Get it down. And then the real work can start. Yeah, somebody terribly intelligent, I'm not sure who, but some genius said, the first draft is telling yourself the story. And once I understood that, it made it much easier to get my shitty draft for book two down. Because instead of worrying about how you tell it, just tell it. And once you've told it, you'll know everything that's wrong with it and you can learn how to tell it properly. It feels bizarre having this conversation with you because at the time of recording, the book isn't out um, on general yet but it it will be by the time this airs. At what stage in the process did the television adaptation come about and how much can you tell us about that? 
that happened before my deal was announced. So I came out of an auction for the UK publisher, then went straight into the following week an auction for the American. So this is all terribly surreal. And I'm sitting there on Zoom thinking, is this really happening? Putting lipstick on for the first time in ages because it was lockdown. And then thought that was all over, breathe a sigh of relief. And then it was actually we've got some interest in book to film. And I had, I think it was 12 different Zooms with all sorts of people. There was a, an Oscar nominated actress who wanted to be involved in it. There was a, a director of Hollywood films. And then there was Liz Kilgariff, who's at Firebird Pictures. She used to be BBC and she'd done Bodyguard. She'd done Luther. She'd done The Cry. And I knew from 10 minutes into my Zoom with her that I wanted her to be involved in this because she just got it. She could talk about these characters as if she, I, I honestly at one point thought she would beat me in a character quiz on the characters I'd invented. She was that invested in it. Wow. And I knew that lots of things get optioned and it's quite, you know, it's not uncommon to be optioned and then absolutely nothing happens and it sits in a drawer for years and years and years until your option runs out. And that's honestly what I expected. But even before the book deal was announced, it was commissioned by the BBC. And I think a lot of it is about timing and about luck and about I think people want more diverse voices on telly. And because my book is not the typical struggle, pain, you know, it sort of stood out in a way. And to be fair, when I was writing it, I did see it on telly. I, I do think I think quite visually. So there's some scenes that I looked up for my computer and I could honestly almost see them happening. The Oambe scene or Boo's daughter's birthday party. I could literally see it happening. So I do think it does lend itself to a... TV, a limited TV series and it's being the script is being adapted by Teresa Ikoko who was BAFTA nominated for Rocks which is a stunning film I was asked do you want to get involved in writing the script and you sort of think god yeah I can do that and then you realize I'm struggling to write book two there's no way I can learn how to write a script and I just felt let's somebody who knows what they're doing and can do it justice. Because the beauty about fiction is you can get inside people's heads so the reader can hear what they're thinking. Obviously in TV, you can't, they have to say, you know, there's, you can't sort of have speech bubbles. And a lot of my book happens inside their heads. So I think that challenge is best suited to somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Well. I don't think rhinoceros skin is sufficient for you when you go through this next stage of the process then by seeing it on television, because having seen there is nothing more, it just makes you feel terrified and alive at the same time when you see what people have, have you know, how they've interpreted your work, because it's not just about a writer coming on to do the screenplay version of your work. It's about actors that interpreting yeah, and like characters and you feel like, you go, what the hell is going on? This is completely surreal. And they know? don't look like that. Um, I know exactly what these women look like and they're not going to look like exactly what they look like in my head. I know, and I'm afraid you're going to have to let all of that I go. Know, I know, it's <laughs> going to be hard. I might not watch it. Reading it, though, I and I haven't been involved in any of these conversations, but reading it, you can see it. You can completely see yeah. this on the screen. And I wonder whether that has to do with the level of detail you go into in terms of the food, in terms of the, the characters themselves and how they interact, but also the point I mentioned earlier, the structure, yeah. you know, you essentially have four competing perspectives on the past and the present. You have this dark secret that pervades everything 
that happens. And I'm kind of, I was wondering, you know, as I was reading, I was like, I wonder what it, I wonder what happened. I wonder what it is. I wonder what it's connected to. And then when it comes, you're like, oh, I didn't <laughs> expect that. <laughs> so congratulations on on that. Nikki, you keep talking about book two. What's, yes. what's that about? Is that, is this a two book deal that you've signed? It is unfortunately. And I say, unfortunately, very seriously. If I, it's, when you write book one, you're writing for yourself. I mean, you have all these hopes and ambitions. And of course, you're doing pretend interviews with, well, it would be Terry Wogan if you're in the commitments, but you know, in your head, you're sort of on woman's hour telling Emma Barnett about your wonderful book, but it's just in your head and you're just, this is just fun. Uh, but book two, it, there's expectation, there's pressure, there's a ticking clock. And there are all these things people have said about your book one that you think, I didn't know these, I didn't know I was doing these things when I was writing it. And now that you're telling me I did these things, I don't know how to do it again. So I have to be honest and say book two is really hard, really pressurized really scary but I've managed to get a shitty draft down and that's the important thing I keep telling myself you did it you can do it again I love my characters it's nothing to do with Wahala it's completely new people a completely new world we spend a bit more time in Nigeria and this is going to sound really up myself and I promise I'm not but it's loosely inspired by Mansfield Park so it's about two cousins and you sort of have the rich relation and the poor relation. Obviously, the poor relation is the half Nigerian one and their worlds collide. But at its heart, I can't get away from this revenge thing. I think I just love revenge and epic revenge. So it's still going to have a bit of that in it. But it's a book about finding your place. The showcase that I met you at towards the end of 2021 was for the double day um, imprint of Penguin Random House. It was their debutante evening. And I think that what you're what you're saying is what every debutante writer has experienced. Because most writers never get past that first iteration of their story. Then there's a smaller subset of writers that get past that and then it gets out into the world. And some are then so crippled by the experience they never write anything again there is a then even smaller subset of people like yourself who find yourself in in this position not wishing to cripple you with anxiety but the expectation yeah. the pressure the sales of book one the yeah. fact that this time you you're not you're not being given a free pass but actually people are there to help you now there may be a bit of a, a target on your back around the fact that well she's had all of these reviews and, and i can find my own self getting really really anxious when I think about the pressure of the next book or the next project yeah. and I just then eventually conclude do you know what you have to write without fear exactly because you're crippled with fear this is never going to go anywhere and I think that is part of the learning process and I, I, I wanted to ask is that the conclusion you reached did you just go do you know what I can't put this pressure on myself I just have to get it done it totally is. And I've managed to do that for the first draft. And I did. I actually even had fun with it. I actually got to the stage where I was writing, knowing, just do it. Just you, You've done this before. You can do it again. Love your characters. Because for me, characters are so important. I have to actually see, they have to be alive in my head. So I got to that stage. And I got to the same place again, where I've got this ream of paper. And I put it away. Didn't have six months luxury this time.
time, put it away for a couple of weeks, get it out and you think, oh my God, it needs so much work, which is terrifying. And you've got a clock going tick tock, tick tock. And you've got your agent saying, how's it going with book two? You're like, hmm, great. Honestly, hmm. <laughs> oh my God, oh my God. But, and then I finally got to the stage. Yeah, I never tell your agent the truth. <laughs> never, ever. I finally got to the stage and she won't listen to this, obviously. This is just between us. And I finally got to the stage where I think, no, you can do this. You just need to pull it apart. You need to do this. And also, don't forget, I edited book one 14 times after I got an agent. So you're going to do the same here. So I'm I'm trying to not feel pressured and I'm trying to not feel frightened. But I will be honest, at least once a day, I do have the, oh, my God, why did I do this? I'm never doing two books again. I'm not sure I'll ever write another book again. That is the life of a writer, I think, in that one sentence. And it doesn't get better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for now, let's celebrate the wins. Let's celebrate the publication. Wahala is out now. It's described on the proof that I have as Sex and the City with a killer edge for fans of Queenie, Expectation, and My Sister, the Serial Killer. It is dark, funny, brooding, malevolent, and joyous. Nikki May, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. It's been so good talking to you and I really appreciate this opportunity. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Nikki May for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Representation matters. And as a writer, you should think about including a diversity of characters in your work. But culture doesn't have to be front and centre at all times. It doesn't need to be the linchpin of your story. Race can instead serve as texture. Don't fall too deeply in love with your characters because you may end up protecting them from pain. For characters to grow, you're going to need to knock them down a few pegs from time to time. And just because you've put the book away for now doesn't mean it has to go away for good. Despite initially giving up, Nikki kept thinking about her characters and eventually she felt she had to finish the book. If you've become jaded by the writing process and you need to take a break, you haven't failed. This isn't the end. Feel free to give some of yourself to your characters. It doesn't have to be your whole self, and you don't need a character that's exactly like you. But injecting little pieces of your personality and little moments of your life history can make a character feel real. Oh, and when Nikki mentioned the imaginary conversation she might have on Woman's Hour... Well, actually, earlier this month, she was on Woman's Hour, just a few weeks after our initial interview. Your payoff will come too. Go get it. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. Here comes the Wahala. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.